the British realised they kind of lost control and they were confronted with the racism and the inhumanity of of what the Imperial Project could involve. I mean, even Winston Churchill, the greatest defender of the British Empire, said it was monstrous. It radicalised a whole bunch of people in India. It also radicalised the British in in a sense in that I think it radicalised those people who were against empire and thought there was something rotten about the enterprise. I personally think that was the beginning of the end. What's happening, people? Welcome to this week's episode of the Indie and Dots podcast. I am joined by probably the specialist guest we've ever had. His name is Sadnam Sangera. He is a British journalist and best-selling author. He has created documentaries detailing the extent of the British rule called Empire State of Mind, which is shown on Channel 4 and is now available on Apple. His latest book, Empire World, is now available in all bookstores, and it is a follow-up to his best-selling book, Empire Land. As well as writing books on Empire, Sadnam's book, The Boy with the Top Knot, has been transformed into a BBC adaptation. Satnam, thank you so much for coming on today because for smaller creators like myself and Doctor, it is an absolute privilege to have you here. How oh, are you? Pleasure. I'm a fan of your content on Instagram. Yes, correct. Yes. Your yes, musings you. about weddings and chuklia and uh, other Punjabi phenomena. I'm probably saying yes. chuklia wrong. No, you're probably saying it correctly, but yeah, yeah. I'm the wrong person to ask. That's more D- Dr. Zali because he's the... Mm-hmm. Uh, He's the main guy who enunciates Punjabi correctly and corrects me all the time. Did you know that you are here today in part because of my nephew and my sister politely ambushing you at a book signing? I don't, I don't, I think, no, actually, I don't remember that. I was going to pretend I did. So you were at a book <laughs> signing event in Cheltenham for, I think you did a child's adaptation book. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Last year I did a kid's story yeah. history. Um, yes, that's correct. Uh, my niece and nephew went, my sister went. Uh, my nephew cheekily asked you, are you going to go on my Mama G's podcast? And you said, yes, uh, that will be happening soon. So thank you to my nephew Nahar and my sister Harpery for setting this up because they, polite, they politely applied a little bit of a nudge to get you on it's here. It's all coming back. Obviously actually, I remember them. They're a very sweet, very sweet kid. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, you've been on a book tour at the moment uh, doing the promotion for Empire World. How has that been for you? Um, it's been really amazing, actually, incredibly positive. Um, after, you know, I stopped doing events uh, last year because of so much uh, shouting and racist abuse. But actually, so many people turned out to support me because I, I guess they heard about that. Um, yeah. And it reminded me that actually it's been 95% positive. You know, hundreds of teachers are using the book uh, Empire Land as a teaching resource. Mm-hmm. And um, so many teachers come to my events and so many students who are studying history at university because they were inspired by Empire Land. I met a PhD PhD student who was doing a PhD on the young husband expedition in Tibet, which features in Empire Land. So it's amazing wow. to think you write something and it changes people's lives. And yeah, yeah, it's been lovely getting out. Good, good. And how's the public overall feedback been towards the book so far? Because I know you are obviously have dealt with a lot of racist abuse in the past. How's that been to take that leap into public events again? Cause I know that is probably a, probably a bit of a bit of a fear to step back into. Yeah. To be honest, I haven't had the worst of it. There's a kind of concerted organized campaign against Imperial historians of culture war. You know, right. David Olusoga is a matter of record. He has a bodyguard, uh, Kareem Fowler, who wrote the national trust report on colonialism. You know, she had regularly had to call the police was too scared to walk down the street sometimes is regularly libeled in the press. So it's a concerted campaign against woke 
historians, by meaning mm. historians who dare to challenge the narrative of established colonial history, which is basically what history does, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, does, it does have a difficult side to it. it, makes you a bit paranoid, being quoted out of context, bad faith arguments. No, I did a great event in India last year and then came back home and it was written up in the most evil way imaginable in a British newspaper. So that makes you paranoid. But I've got mm-hmm. to say it's gone really well so far with the events. Though I'm off to Bath and Edinburgh this week, so who knows? Ooh, Edinburgh. Okay. So you've been doing a book tour pretty much up and down because you were in Wolverhampton last week. Uh, a friend World of mine messaged me and told me, yeah. yes, it is. Yes, world-renowned. Um, he messaged me saying he was going to go and see you and I was a bit jealous. I was going to come last Thursday to your event in London, but I had a tooth operation, so I couldn't make it um, ahead of time. But I was really glad that I'm okay for today and today's chat. Well, so, your teeth are looking good, man. It's, it's, it's at the back of my mouth. So the swelling is still there, <laughs> but I've taken a bunch of painkillers. So I'm, I'm a okay. You've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> so I've got a few uh, questions around your current book and your last book as well. Um, the first thing that really stood out to me from reading Empire Land is you've mentioned a lot about the British distrust of cleverness. And that's something that I feel is very relevant then and now, considering we're probably in an election year and we have been through numerous prime ministers recently, probably more than uh, usual, I guess you can say. Why is there sort of this twinge towards anti-smartness in the British lay of the land um, in terms of our leaders being smart and switched on? Um, I remember in the book you mentioned Boris Johnson saying he's actually bilingual, which I didn't know. And he's also proficient in three languages, which I also didn't know. But people see him as a babbling buffoon. Also, he portrays himself image so... as a babbling buffoon. Yeah. yeah Why is that he... image so sexy, I guess you can say? Well, it plays well in Britain, actually. And I think one of the, his attack lines on, on Keir Starmer early on was that he was too clever. You know, you know, that phrase, too clever by half, is such a British thing, isn't it? But it was employed in the empire because, you know, I think it was the Sudan service during a certain phase of empire in Africa, the people recruiting people, um, colonialists to do the work, wanted people who'd gone to Oxbridge but got third-class degrees, people who'd gone gone there and done well in sport but hadn't necessarily been academically smart. And I guess the idea is that you want people to do your work but not to think too hard about it. So there's a reason for it in empire. You know, if you have people questioning the whole point of empire, empire doesn't happen, right? But I think there's an anti-intellectual thing in Britain where, yeah, they're, they're very clever, are distrusted, and I think that's one of Rishi's problems. Well, he's got many problems, but <laughs> one of them is that he's seen as overly clever. And actually, British people like people who are common, who have common sense and get things done. I would like to think that, but then... Because we elected someone like Boris, I feel like the the common senseness goes out the window and that just gets pushed aside. Would you say that's built around the media narrative or the media sort of affection for him, which therefore makes people think that he is a larger than life good character to have in office, for example? I think you're talking here about entertainment and a little bit, like yeah. to be, seemingly people like to be entertaining their politics. But I feel like that is very much over in Britain. You know, I sat next to a Conservative Party supporter uh, at the dinner recently, he was complaining that the problem with Keir Starmer was that he was too boring. And I said to her, look, where has your desire for entertainment got you? You know, 
Where has it got mm. this country? Are you seriously mm. saying you want more entertainment? I actually think in Britain, we are ready for something very, very boring to not worry about politics every day of our lives. But America might be heading back to the drama of Donald Trump. It might be, which would be another fascinating picture to imagine in the future. But that's something I'm not really fully ready to get my head around. I think it's probably possible, but who knows? A lot can change in a few months or a few years. Anything's possible, right? Yeah. Okay, so with that as well, I'm just staying on on the British love for disc for people not being as switched on as maybe you would think. We do have this culture in Britain as well of celebrating near near misses. So I remember you saying in the book, we always speak really fondly about England in the World Cup and how we missed out in the nineties twice with really, really close penalty shootout losses, etc., and Gaza crying. Why is there so much love for that? But then the actual wins don't get that much affection, I guess you can say, or as much publicity. Yeah, this is a theory that actually the British psyche is drawn to instances where it loses rather than to victory. So I guess Gallipoli during World War One, Dunkirk and all these, um, you know, times in history where we failed or where we've lost against Argentina. My theory mm. about that is that we ran the biggest empire in human history, you know, and that is too much to take in. If you actually accept that, that raises a lot of questions. That that implies that actually you might be responsible for a lot of things also, might be responsible for a lot of problems. It's much yeah. easier to think of yourself as a victim, as someone who loses. So I think it's a much more psychologically comfortable area for British people to live in. But where does that sort of come from in terms of being passed from person to person? Would you say that really extends all the way back to empire at the beginning? I think it's just a national, people are the way they are. And I think there's a natural characteristic. I think there's a self-deprecation about Britain that can be a really charming thing. Look at Hugh Grant, right? Um, it can yeah. be, it can be very uh, affectionate and nice, but there's a dark side to that when actually you have no reason to self-deprecate when actually you've been in charge when you've run the biggest empire in human, in human history, when your empire had the same surface area as the moon, you know, accepting that is quite difficult. Um, much easier to just think, Oh, we lost. And it's How a much more interesting the... story, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. How did you, you know, get the, the moon analogy? I mean, that's when you put it like that, that's quite disturbing because <laughs> that's easier to sort of look in the sky and see it. I guess you could say, I can see it now out my window. I actually didn't yeah. realize the moon was that big, but yeah, apparently the same <laughs> surface area as the British Empire. Wow. Okay. That is a lot to take in. Yeah, you are correct. Even I'm feeling the uh, the weight of it, I guess you can say. <laughs> when you were writing all of these books, how do you find time to sort of detach away from it? Because you've obviously had to, had to go through, I mean, the bibliography in both books is huge. So to go through, cite sources, find the right people to credit, but also to read all of their writings on, some harrowing accounts, I guess it's fair to say, on what happened. Are you ever able to switch off from it? And how much of a toll does that have on you personally in your own life? I think my family and my girlfriend would say I don't switch off. Mm. And yeah, I think I am probably a workaholic. Um, blame my Punjabi parents. Um, I have the same issue. My wife says <laughs> the same thing to me, mate, which is... You I just don't know. Also, just, we never had holidays when we grew up. Did you have holidays? We... we, we we either went we had shopping, a shop. went to see relatives. We had a shop. So oh. it was upstairs was then and downstairs was the pharmacy post office. 
then when I was in my GCSE years, uh, I was told to work at the off license as well. So I was pulled in and out a lot and doing work for the family business wherever possible. I got it easier than my siblings because I know they're going to message me and say, you don't have it as bad as us. I was the youngest. I got a little bit spoiled. But I do have that big workaholic behavior that my mum and dad definitely had. And that's passed forward to me with wanting to have a day job and then speak to great people like you in the evening. So that's definitely within me, but just in a different way. Yeah, I think it's something of a community tendency. Um, I was working in a factory as a kid, like sometimes 90 hours a week in school holidays. But um, I was really with this book, I was just really paranoid because I'm not historian by training. So, and I get a lot of criticism. So I just wanted to make sure there's proof for everything I say, because there's a tendency for critics of mine to say you've made it up. So I want to say, look, there's 50,000 pages of notes there. If you want to check what I said, there's always mistakes, but yeah, um, I wanted to be accountable. So yeah, I put the work in. But how do you ever switch off at all? I mean, surely it isn't 24-7. I know that in I the intro of, 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 of the new book, <laughs> you've actually mentioned when you went to Barbados and then it unlocked a bit of a, a door for you to want to write the second book and then write about yeah, all Yeah, I went to Barbados on my first holiday in years and then it turns out, you know, Barbados was a big part of the empire and uh, I ended up going to visit some former slave plantations. But I do relax. I guess I watch... Uh, you know what I watch? I watch Antiques Road Trip. I'm obsessed with that show, <laughs> mainly because it's on all the time. And I just think there's a generation of children out there watching this stuff, daytime TV, who are going to be radicalized. There's going to be like an army of antiques traders in 20 years' time. But I'm one of them. I'm really obsessed with antiques suddenly. So it's got nothing to do with my world. So I really love that. Have that you ever tried to go design. through... Have you ever tried to go through like a family home and just see if anything's eligible to be put on Antiques Roadshow or anything like that? You know what Punjabis do? They throw everything away because there's no. an obsession with newness. So my, I, have, I had all these uh, old 80s computer equipment, which is really valuable now. And my mum threw yeah. it all away. I've got the opposite of mine. You can find stuff in there that is older than my siblings. So there's a microwave at my mum and dad's house, which is <laughs> as old as my fault. But it's as old as my 40-year-old brother. Just to give you an example of how much hoarding happens. So the new microwave conked out. It took me, my brother, and my dad to pick up the old one and put it back in its place because it's obviously got a built-in oven, but they are not light by any stretch of the imagination. So my parents don't throw anything away. So I think I should pay, probably sign up to go on that show and maybe find some cash in that. I think so. A definition of an antique is something that's 100 years old. So this is the Ooh, way in which immigrant, immigrant families don't have that kind of history, right? Yeah. The stuff we get excited about that we think is old is literally a microwave. Or <laughs> in my mum's case, like the oldest thing in the house is a masher, potato masher, that I yes. remember her buying in 1979. And I feel very affectionate about it, right? Yeah, of But course. this is what immigrants do because we don't have that long-standing history in the country, do we? Everything is new. Yeah, everything is semi-new, I guess you can say. Yeah, or secondhand. It's very true. So when you have touched upon India in the first book, um, and even in the second book, actually, you've mentioned how India is trying to de decolonize itself and how tricky that can actually be. You gave this comparison of how it's like trying to take the ghee out of an omelette after it's been made, which is a very, very fair point. Why do you think India is starting to go through that transition now? And um, what's the appeal for them to want to go through this? Yeah, I think most people in Britain don't realize that India has this kind of decolonization mission. And yeah. it's doing some really interesting things. So it wants to 
uh, allow in medical degrees to be taught in non-English languages. It's allowing wow. Ayurvedic uh, professionals, medical professionals to do surgery. It's, you know, uh, taking the St. George's flag off the Royal, uh, over the Indian Navy sign. It's uh, um, reducing the use of English in general. But it can only ever be tokenistic because, you know, I don't see Modi um, getting rid of cricket, for instance, mm. which is like a religion in, in, in India. I don't see him saying changing the side of the road that Indians drive on. And also the way he describes colonialism, I think he talks about 1,000 years of colonialism or maybe 2,000 years of colonialism. He puts together the British experience of India and also the Mughal emperors. So he sees both as as colonization. So for him, talking about decolonization is a way in which to engage in his habitual um, Islamophobia, frankly, combining it with anti-Britishness as well. But it's amazing how people use history to further their own political ends. It happens around the world. It's happening in Russia at the moment. And it definitely happens in Britain too. Okay, so if he has this tokenistic mission, obviously taking a step to sort of go through that and say, okay, I'm going to make Hindi the main language here, which is going to be taught, similar to, I guess you can say, the closest comparison I can think of is China, where they are only using their own native languages in certain areas to teach and learn there and English is seen as a second language, which is completely understandable. Do, do they not think that that is a bit short-sighted to the point where if they are to travel abroad and go and teach elsewhere, they're going to be limited in their options of potentially um, exploring those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, objectively speaking, the fact that so many people speak English in India means that not only people within India can communicate with each other because there's hundreds of languages, it means True. they can trade more easily with the world. But you've got to remember that India is an increasingly confident nation and it's run by a nationalistic party. So mm. this plays very well internally in terms of internal politics. And it's not about the practicalities. And similarly in Britain, all the nostalgia about empire is not about a practical thing. It's just they think it gets them votes. And I think the same thing is happening in India. Okay. That's quite... Yeah, that's quite dark. It's quite dark if you think about the intent behind it. So it's not to actually further the nation. It's just, again, for the purpose of politics and posturing. I think it's not always the case. I think some decolonization really does do something important. It reestablishes the dignity and confidence of the formerly colonized. So mm. I think some of the stuff is really smart and great. I mean, it's great that, for example, a lot of Indian cities are changing their names to indigenous yes yeah. correct yeah like, like yeah you know loads of places that's great you know but it can be weaponized by nationalists and it is which it clearly has been okay in the book you also spoke about how people have when they were stationed in india they became accustomed to that kind of way of living with having x amount of help that when they came back to england they were unable to sort of acclimatize and they found it very challenging to get back to normal ways. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because that's not really covered in any sort of conversation. It's just, oh, they went there, they came back. You would assume everyone went, went back to their old ways. But you've actually mentioned it was more difficult than some would imagine. Yeah, I think they experienced a culture shock. They were called, the people who came back from India were often called the nabobs. And that word is now exists in the English language. It means that someone who's kind of, kind of, has some status in India and is lording it over people in 
Britain in the same way. They arrived often with lots of money because, you know, going to India was the equivalent of going to work for JP Morgan or Tesla or something or Google. You, you could make a lot of money. But also the mm. people there were often influenced by Indian art and culture and they were drawn to each other because their fellow Brits didn't understand what they've been through. So they often ended up living in the same kind of places in Britain. And you still see some remnants of this, you know, if you've heard of Sezincourt House in the Cotswolds, no, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a stately home, but it's built in the style of an Indian palace and mm. it's owned by, you know, someone who came back from India and, and often they wanted to eat curry, of course. And so you had the emergence of the first Indian restaurants. And there was a guy called Dean Mohammed who set up the first Indian restaurant in London aimed at Brits who'd come back from India in the 19th century. So the headline here really is the curry loving Brits now are in love with curry because it was the fact that people went to India, came back. And then when they came back, there was a demand for it. Somebody saw the demand, opened the first curry house, and then the rest is kind of history. Yeah, there's so many things about Britain that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for empire. Um, curry is the most obvious example, but loads of spices. Um, you and I, I mean, loads of emigration. Very good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for empire. Um, mm. A lot of the stately homes were bought by these people who'd made a lot of money and they bought them up and they still stand today. And this is history that has only recently emerged, really, and people are only just becoming aware of it. Okay. I wanted to ask you about um, reparations and why it's so difficult to sort of pay that back. A commonly held belief by the a layman, I guess you can say, is, well, the British should just pay back the other countries for all the damage that had happened over the years. You've detailed why that's so difficult and why there are so many different calculations that can be done behind this. Could you give people a bit of an insight as to why that's not an easy task and actually may potentially never be something that is realized it's because in my view the legacies of empire were profoundly contradictory so for example we a british empire resulted in a certain amount of democracy in certain mm. countries it also resulted in massive chaos in places like kashmir myanmar nigeria and so on british empire resulted in massive environmental damage a clear case for reparations right also british empire resulted in the birth of modern-day environmentalism, which helped conserve the environment and, and animals in certain parts of the world. It spread the free press, but it also spread press censorship. So when the legacies are profoundly contradictory, which bit do you focus on? You know, do you say thanks for the positive things and then ask for compensation for the negative things? But at the same time, there are certain legacies where you can say, okay, we caused that. And we've actually not helped and made it worse. For example, in the Caribbean, the Caribbean has the highest rate of diabetes, one of the highest rates of diabetes in the world. And guess what? We sent a load of Africans there to produce sugar in industrial quantities. And yeah. then when we had abolition, we didn't give them money to develop health systems. And now we poach their best health workers. So that's the situation where you can see that we cause massive harm and we are continuing to cause harm. And I think in that situation, you can definitely talk about reparations. But it's a complicated subject. People come up with these figures. I think there was a judge at the International Court of Justice who recently said that we owed 18 trillion pounds in reparations for slavery. 
how do you come up with that figure? You know, you I've seen many different figures. But mm. I think we're as a country, we're nowhere near talking about the figures yet because we haven't even faced up to the history. We're a long way to having that conversation. I guess there's two ways you can go about it. You can go the India route, which is we're going to cleanse ourselves of anything related to colonialism. Or you can go the Barbados route, which is where you've written, they have actually set up campaigns to try and get some sort of reparations paid to them. So which one is probably the better route to take is open to each country's own interpretation. Yeah, and but there's also other other ways in, in that increasingly in the conversation about the environment and about the climate change, people are saying, hold on, the Brits and the other European colonizers need to remember the damage they caused. You know, we talk endlessly about India and China, you know, causing all this pollution. What about the damage and the pollution caused by these colonialists? So there's also the argument that you need to broaden the argument when it comes to issues such as environmentalism, democracy and human rights. We need to take a much more historical point of view, perspective. And with those calculations that have been drawn up, how do people tend to come to those numbers? Is there a common theme with any of them where they say, well, this amount was shipped from here, let's add some inflation onto it over X amount of years, and then, bam, there's a number. Listen, look, history is argument. There's almost nothing to do with the history of empire that people don't dis disagree on. They disagree about when it started, when it ended. Some people say yeah. it didn't happen, right? But when you add economics to that, you have even more argument. No two e economists will agree about anything. But when yeah, it comes to empire, it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. chaos. I mean, there's hundreds of historic economic imperial economists arguing a bunch of things using a, a bunch of different calculations i think mm. the numbers are impossible as soon as you get numbers you think it's going to be scientific but actually it's not scientific it's just whatever that person has decided is the truth do you in your personal opinion think britain will ever come to a position where it will pay anything back to those countries that are affected i think it will do, actually. I think it'll happen within the next 20 years, mainly because it is happening below a government level. I mean, the Church of England has paid £100 million in reparations. You've got individual families who were involved in slavery. So you've got the Gladstone family, the Trevelyan family, the Renton family, and they're paying reparations. You've got countries like Germany have paid reparations to their former colonies. It's an active conversation in the EU, in Belgium, in Holland. So I feel like... We're falling behind the conversation, and I, I think it will happen. And you could argue, in a way, these reparations have already started because look, the Good Friday Agreement, Ireland was arguably the first stage of the British Empire. And mm. you could argue that some of the payments made as part of the Good Friday Agreement were reparations. That Britain was forced to pay, um, once it was taken to court, compensation to the victims as a result of the Mau Mau crisis in Kenya. I think 20 million pounds was paid. An apology was made. So I would say it's already started and it's inevitable. Do you reckon that will bankrupt us? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Genuinely, we'll get to the I actually where, mean that as well. I'm not being facetious. I don't think we're going to end up paying, paying 18 trillion pounds in reparations for slavery. That just isn't going to happen. I just can't see it practically happening. But I think conversations will start and micro efforts will be made. Whether that's enough or not, I mean, that's for people to decide. One common conversation off that is how can we apply the ethics of today to what happened then? 
Yeah, and I get that. All I'm the sure. Time. I'm. I'm sure that's going to be used in this conversation as well for reparations. What can we, or what should be the rebuttal for that? That is fair. You need to remember that at the time, all these things were opposed by sometimes imperialists involved in the colonial project. You know. Everything that the British Empire did, everything that happened was opposed by British people at the time. You know, Hastings, Warren Hastings and Lord Clive were dragged in front of Parliament. Arthur Hodges was hung for the way he treated slaves. This was stuff that people were furious about at the time. Abolition wouldn't have happened if people at the time weren't absolutely furious about the way the enslaved were being treated. And you got people like George Orwell, who was who was outraged by what was happening in empire. So autocriticism or dissent was a part of the imperial project. And it's not about applying today's morals. We just have to look about the way in which people like Gladstone talked about empire at the time. But could the pushback to that be Gladstone was one of, um, one of few, not many? I think that actually British people in general benefited a lot from empire, mm. you know, in daily ways, tea, sugar, you know, all these spices, the day, the wealth of certain organizations, you know, their, their lives were enhanced by the empire in all sorts of ways, which can be calculated. So I would say it wasn't just the elite. Let's just read over a quick note I've got here. So, um, museums. Okay. This is, um, I've seen a lot covered on museums and how they've come across certain pieces. Um, John Oliver did a fantastic piece on this on his show a couple of years back. Um, I go back and watch it quite frequently because his clips are very well researched. And as a British guy, I resonate with the stuff, even though he's based in America and I get those clips on YouTube. So very happy with museums you've covered a bit about emotional loot from empire and how artifacts were obtained by the british museums how were they obtained by such dark and opaque means but it's still socially accepted that that practice still occurs or that behavior occurs i don't think that behavior necessarily occurs in the same way i think it was part of british imperialism but almost routinely when people went on expeditions there would be people from the representatives of the British Museum trying to buy stuff or actually on the expeditions themselves. Um, but it wasn't seen as necessarily bad at the time because there was a search for knowledge which went along with the colonial project. You know, it was mm. seen as furthering humanity to collect this stuff. But now that we know precisely in some cases, you know, th that certain objects were obtained through murder and deception i think we have a moral duty to engage in proper conversations about this and the thing is there's often you know people often say i think david cameron once said we can't do this because if we do this the british museum will be empty but the british museum i think only has one percent of its collection on display even if we gave back every contested item tonight the british museum would have quite a lot of stuff to display and actually i think it's good for the nation good for our souls to engage in a meaningful way with the world at a time because of Brexit, when we're trying to have better relationships with the world, it's happening anyway. I mean, this week we had uh, the VNA return items to Ghana on a long-term loan. And so I think the museum sector has realized that, again, it's falling behind the international conversation because 
It's happening in France, Germany, America. Stuff is going back. Loot is going back. And of course, you know that loot itself is a Hindi word. That the British stole so much, they also stole the word. Lutana. Actually, I think it's a bit of a Punjabi word as well, although I know you're not the person to ask. I'm not the person to ask, but that is very ironic. Um, if that's true. Yeah, yeah it's definitely Even... true. Loot is a Hindi word. And actually, one of the things, I love this story, one of the items that the British stole was when they uh, burnt down the Imperial Summer Palace in former Peking. They took a dog mm. for Queen Victoria. She already had the crown jewels and uh, the koh and everything else, but they took a dog and they named it Looty. And they took it to the Queen. The Queen loved it. And then she had Looty the dog painted. So if you Google Looty the dog, you'll find the portrait. I think it's in the portrait gallery. So there you go. Levels, levels to the uh, the trolling, I guess you can yeah, say. Yeah, levels to the way. trolling, man. Going back to the point about loans and the long-term loan given, is that returned or is that just given, as you said, on loan because they're expecting it back? Uh, the British Museums are in a weird position because, first of all, they've got a government that doesn't want them to return stuff. Secondly, yeah. there's a, I think there's a Museum Act, I can't remember which year, which bans a lot of the National Museums from returning stuff permanently. But the people running these museums also know they look ridiculous for not mm. giving this stuff back. So what they can do is give stuff back on long-term loan. So it's a fudge. A nice um, little loophole. It's a loophole. And some some of the nations who want their stuff back don't want it back on a loan. Like the people, mm. the marbles, Greece doesn't want it on a loan. They want it back because it was Of stolen. course they do, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I guarantee you within the next 10 years, a lot of this stuff will be returned. Probably not the Koh-i-Noor, though. Um, I want to come to that later, so <laughs> pop a pin in that. We will definitely revisit. Um, to play devil's advocate then on that, is, it, is there a case to potentially say the British preserved history by doing what they did and taking artifacts from native countries? So, for example, there's a few items in the museum which probably wouldn't still be there if we left it in the state as it was potentially found in the native country. I would question that on the grounds that you've probably seen in the news, the British Museum is losing a lot of its stuff. Um, one of the is things it just going that... going conveniently missing. Missing. One of, the, one of the things that went missing when Ranjit Singh's treasury was raided was Guru, Shri Guru Gobind Singh's Galgi. You know, I wanted fair, to ask you about this, yes. You know, yes. They lost that because obviously it didn't seem valuable to them. They were probably looking for the gold and the diamonds, right? But that would have been of a huge emotional moral value to Sikhs, right? Apparently they also lost fantastic, some man. of the relics of the Prophet Muhammad. Imagine what that yeah. would have meant to people. Mm. And so I would say the record of the British of preserving this stuff is distinctly patchy. But besides, there's a lot of museums now, modern museums in Africa and India that can very much look after this stuff. So I don't think that really uh, goes far as an argument. Does anybody know what actually happened to those items? Were they just conveniently lost or disposed? No, I know there's academics even now trying to work out where they went. And who knows, you know, who knows? I mean, also, I hope someone finds that it's in some personal collection somewhere and they can just reclaim it. But it might be in the, the Black British Market's Museum or the VNA collection. Who knows? Because their, their catalogues are, are warehouses are massive. You've got to know what you're looking for. I wonder if there's a hypothesis where things just go missing because there's so many things there that it can just be checked out and no one can really track it down. And no, yeah, there's, there's a great Malcolm Gladwell uh, podcast about this, about how um, museums just want to collect everything 
and not necessarily show it, you know. Yeah. Like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has like pretty much the biggest selection of Islamic carpets in the world and mm. no one's seen them. It's just because they've got the experts and they've got the money. So what's the point of that? You know, this, these, he calls it, I think he calls it dragon hoarding, which is a mm. tendency of these institutions to just collect everything and keep it. And his point is that a lot of this stuff is just hiding there. A lot of it you can't even find online. You can't even, it's not even been catalogued. That ties in well to the next point I wanted to ask, which is because there are so many collections, as you said, potentially the 99% that isn't on display. What would be a suitable middle ground to sort of address this unequal hoarding of items that don't belong to the British? If you were, say, the culture secretary and you had the power to sort of get something in place, how would you go about handling this? Well, that I think doesn't, that wouldn't, doesn't there annoy wouldn't be like too, millions too many of items um, being given back because actually not many are actually being sought back. It's actually a small number of quantities of items but i think a big thing that could change the argument or alter affect the argument is that is the invention of 3d printing i mean mm. you can both have an exact replica of an item in britain and also give it back i mean we could replicate the marbles quite easily like to the millimeter right and return mm. them to greece but similar things could be done with imperial loot though i guess that once again you struggle with a coin or diamond. Even if we gave it back, that's all great. But as you said, there's a lot of items that aren't asked for to be returned. Should those just be returned in general anyway? Because maybe they've forgotten about the fact that those were taken? Oh, no, of course not. No, I mean, there's no point in returning stuff that um, no one wants anyway. That's pointless. I think also, you know, I believe in the British Museum. I think it does important education work. Mm. Um, it's, there's definite, there's a point in having such a range of items from from the range of history from around the world in one place. I can see that. But we don't have to have absolutely everything. That's my point. Okay, fine. Why do we think artifacts will never actually be returned then? Like the main core reason, despite government resistance, is that the only thing holding it back? Or is there a sense of Britishness, which is where they want to hold on to things? I point to the quote you said in Empire Land, which is, People have no problem telling people to go back home, but ask them to give back one little thing from the British Museum. They they always say, this priceless inanimate item from someone else's culture belongs here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, museums are a big part of our culture. You know, a lot of tourists come here for the museums. They're yeah. free to entry. So they're part of how we see ourselves. So I can see why people get defensive, but I don't think it's never going to change. I think it's going to change almost immediately with a change of government. I think this stuff will happen within 10 years. The conversation changed. Young people, you know, when they, have you ever walked around the British Museum lately and walked around behind some Indians or some Chinese people, you know? I haven't been for a while, no. They are, people are furious. And I think young people feel the same way about museums, the way, I felt about zoos, you know, I would go to Dudley Zoo and think, why the hell is there a panda on a hillside? In Just Dudley? cooped up in a cage, yeah. In Dudley, man. Send the, send the panda back to China. And yeah, yeah. I think young people feel the same about museums. They actually don't enjoy going around seeing loot. And they want to know, they want to make sure that the stuff hasn't been stolen. So I think it's becoming a PR problem in terms of engaging the next generation. So things will change because of that. Okay. It wouldn't be 
our podcast if we didn't talk a lot about sicky or sickism um, yeah, yeah no, you've mentioned that lack, yeah and a you, lack of c questions no 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 no. i've been saving it because I, I was conscious of time um but we have a lot to go so sicky topics um the six have fought long and hard to establish a good relationship as immigrants in the uk um why is our relationship with the british and empire so complex because i didn't realize this until i started reading about empire that the sikh identity was to some degree supercharged by British Empire. You know, we obviously established ourselves as a kind of a martial race on our own terms, but then the British supercharged it because basically, I'm simplifying things here, we took their side in the mutiny of 1857, right? And so that was the event that made them think there was something special about us, that we were particularly good fighters. Also, of course, we almost defeated the British. You know, we were the last group taken on by the British and we almost defeated them and, and, and could have done. So they had a very high opinion of us in terms of a martial race. And they had a lot of weird racial science at the time, which they applied to us and many other racial groups. But they flattered us. And actually, as a result, a lot of people converted to Sikhism because a lot of Indians wanted to be treated well by the British and they wanted to get rid of their caste. And so arguably, not only is our identity, but our demographics, our existence can, to some degree, be explained by the British Empire. And I didn't realise that. And then, of course, on top of that, a lot of Sikhs took advantage of the opportunities that Empire gave for migration to East Africa, to Britain and beyond. And that's one of the reasons why wherever you go in the world, or many places you go in the world, you'll see a Sikh, Sikh taxi driver. It's like, mm. almost always happens. But that's because we were central to the British Imperial Mission and very much involved in it. And you can't understand Sikhs without understanding British Empire. Okay. And Julian Wallabarg is obviously the most upsetting, um, upsetting case that I've seen that I didn't actually know about. I knew about what happened in 1984, um, but I didn't know about it until quite recently. I credit your documentary you put together about it and Empire State of Mind, how you went to India, spoke to experts about it. And I think it was an eye-opening moment for yourself as well. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Um, actually, I think this was a, the massacre documentary I did before Empire State of Mind. It's on Channel 4. But yeah, it was shocking on many levels, but shocking in, in the sense as a Sikh, because there were Sikhs, Sikhs amongst the soldiers during the shooting, and there were Sikh victims too. So that complicates matters. But also, you know, the way in which Sikhs were fetishized by the British imperialists, but also, when necessary, murdered, you know, tied to, tied to the end of cannons and blown to bits. You know, and how as much as the British, you know, love the Sikhs, they wouldn't allow Sikhs to say, drive the trains. They still, they still saw us as lower than themselves. And this is why we should not ever indulge weird racial science. Now, Sikhs see themselves as this martial race. It's still a big thing about our identity. And I think we need to get it out of our system because a lot of that comes from the weird British racial science, which frankly ended up in the Holocaust, you know? We forget that when this racial science emerged, it had a distinctly British flavor. It was then taken up by the Americans and the Germans in weird ways, but the British definitely dominated that science for a while and they used their empire 
as a kind of experiment station for their weird theories about race, how some races were born to work hard and some weren't and, and so on. Racial science being racial stereotypes held about certain types of people. Is that fair? Yeah. Like Sikhs, Sikhs and the houses in West Africa are born fighters. You know, the enslaved African people are born, born lazy. They have to be compelled to work. Um, how white people are intrinsically smarter than everyone else. All sorts of incredible racial stereotypes, which continue today. There's a lot, I think it's something like 44% of people in Britain believe that certain races are born to work harder than others. That's a really dangerous idea when you think about it. Yeah, it is. No one is born to be so, a certain way, are they? I mean, they just... No, of course not. I mean, I'm not exactly built in the best shape to be a martial race fighter either. So <laughs> yeah, I, don't think, I don't think it's very fair. <laughs> I, I, remember don't, my I, first don't, I don't job. think it's very fair. My first job offer like in journalism was from an editor who said, I'm going to employ you because Indians work hard. And I, you know, I Yeah, I remember you saying that in your book. Yeah, that's very hard. flattering. But flattering also, to least accept, but then okay. you think, oh, so you also think that other people are not born to work I'm hard not, and that they're yeah, yeah. intrinsically lazy. And actually that's a dangerous road to go down. So you also said that we should shed that identity side of it. How? How would how would be the the best way to go about this so that we aren't just used as a symbol of, I guess you could say tokenism? Um, I think I'm talking specifically about the racial, the racial no, martial race theory, and yeah. I think we need to stop talking about not only the Sikhs as a martial race, but the Gurkhas in Nepal. We only ever seem to talk about the Gurkhas and the Nepalese in terms of. The, them as warriors completely they were part of the martial race theory but it went around the world the highlanders in scotland were also seen as born fighters the houses in west africa and so i think that i'm talking very specifically about the martial race theory which mm -hmm. is utterly absurd and we shouldn't really indulge it okay i guess there's a the ultimate manifestation of that is the argument that we need to have a sikh regiment in the british army and yeah, but if you do that, then you have to have a Muslim regiment, you have to have a Hindu regiment. My problem and is then that it's you're probably kind of going to cause a headache. The idea that Sikhs are intrinsically martial when they're not, mm -hmm. they're just human beings. Yeah. I guess they have a certain tradition of service in the army. But we do have a tradition of, I guess you could say, taking up arms, but only as a last resort. So that is sort of taught to you as a Sikh if you are in a practicing family from a very early age. So that is instilled within you and you feel that kind of passion and fire within you as a, as a sick boy speaking. Yeah. To defend Even the weak, I, right. But that's different yeah. from a martial race theory where you say you're born to be warlike, you know, mm. that's very different what you're saying. Yeah, true. Shani and Walabag itself, why was that such a tipping point for empire losing its grip on India? I think that was the point at which the British, realized they kind of lost control and they were confronted with the racism and the inhumanity of, of what the Imperial project could involve. I mean, even Winston Churchill, the greatest defender of the British empire said it was monstrous, right? So it radicalized a whole bunch of people in India. And it also radicalized the British in the, in the sense in that 
I think it radicalized those people who were against empire and I thought there was something rotten about the enterprise. And so mm. I think, I personally think that was the beginning of the end. And General Dyer himself, he was exonerated by, was it the House of Lords? Is that correct? Yeah. And the, uh, the, I think the Morning Post, which then became the Daily Telegraph, raised a lot of money in his defense, you know, and gave it to And him. is this the same Daily Telegraph that gave you praise <laughs> recently for your new book being launched? Well, not exactly the same. But yeah, yeah, of, but the same yeah. house. Yeah. yeah. It I shows mean, that times can change, but yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. This people defending empire, you know, this is not a new thing. It's as old as empire itself. People were defending imperialists in their excesses throughout the 19th century in the papers. Mm. And, you know, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express had as their, as their mottos, as their missions, as as being the papers of empire, you know. It was a daily source of pride. And the Daily Mail was still kind of seen as having a massive nationalist slant, I guess you can say. I think that's yeah, yeah, I think that's very It's clear. Uh, it continues. Even in to today's world. Yeah. The Koinor Diamond. How did the British steal this from Maharaja Ranjit Singh via the East India Company? Well, you probably know the story, right? I think every Sikh listening to this probably knows the story. But uh, I'm just filling in gaps because some people genuinely are, are, are new to a lot of this. But please, yeah, well, go ahead. I guess the Sikh kingdom was defeated. Ranjit Singh's empire was defeated finally by the British. Not easily. The British were almost mm. defeated. But as part of that, when the defeat finally happened and, and the Sikhs turned on each other, Dudup Singh, 10 years old, I think, or around 10 years yeah. old, was taken to Britain, separated from her mother, never saw her again raised up as a Christian, converted to Christianity, and also lost this diamond, which was the most famous diamond in the world at the time. And it was given to Queen Victoria, who actually became very close to Dudeep Singh and apparently didn't like wearing the diamond because it reminded her of the slightly, of the distinctly dodgy circumstances in which we inherited it. And... Yeah, I and mean, then one of the weird things they did to the Koinor, I mean, it was a famous diamond and renowned for its size. But when it was put on display initially in Britain, lots of people were disappointed by it. So guess what they did? They cut it down. They cut it down to a fraction of its size, actually, to make it look more shiny and, and cut in a more conventional way. So it reflected the light better. So the modern Koinor diamond is actually a shadow of its former self. And it will never be restored to its normal self. No, because you can't, it's been cut you can't super glue those done. bits back on. <laughs> I wonder what happens to those bits. I wonder if they threw it in the bin or if they kept it. I'm sure they kept okay. it, but it just it shows you how it. there's so many things to be cross about. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there was such a fuss made about not using the Koinor at the coronation. You know, they, they knew it's an incendiary subject for the Sikhs, the Indians, the Iran Iranians, I think, who claimed they had it originally, the Afghanis, because the Sikh kingdom included Afghanistan. Um, yeah. That actually they were like, we're not going to use it. But then they used a diamond from South Africa, which is equally controversial in South Africa, the Cullinan diamond. And just shows to go to show you the royal family in Britain just cannot escape the imperial story, however hard they try. I feel like they, and this is me being conspiratorial, they potentially chose a diamond to substitute that doesn't have as much heat on it as, say, the Goynor, because Britain is still trying to secure a trade deal with India. That's not exactly going swimmingly. Um, it's not been settled. It's been in the works for years. So if they were to put that on display flagrantly, 
during King, King Charles's coronation. That's going to go down really badly and probably stir up the conversations again of that being handed over, giving Rishi Sunak another headache. And he really wants that deal with India because it's his home country. So I'm sure there must have been a word had somewhere saying, don't do it. Also, who do you give it back to? You give it back to Modi? You give it back because then the Sikhs will be very cross. And actually, then. Unfortunately, it has to go to India. But because then the Iranians will be cross. Was... The Iranians will say it was actually a Mughal diamond, right? We yeah. want it back. So who on earth do you give it back to? I know for a fact it won't be given back to the six because they're not respected to the same level as Modi is. So it's going to be very much like Modi will get what he wants and then that's very much it. Plus, it would make sense if you gave that up as a part of a deal to secure a trade negotiation. Maybe it's I a don't last, think it's gonna last resort. I think it means too much to... It's too central to the crown jewels. I actually really? Think that, that's one diamond that will never be returned. And that as an excuse, they'll use the question of who do we give it back to? <laughs> so they're kind of trapped in purgatory conveniently yeah i think they're trapped and yeah it's just it's, that's one thing i don't i predict we'll never go back at least in our lifetimes okay on unless you nick thing. it back black panther style Pff, no chance <laughs> black panther <laughs> style would be fantastic but i can't really envision that happening either <laughs> on the leap thing um why was he so pivotal in ending the sick empire i know you've alluded to the fact that he was taken to england um but he did try and when he was alerted to his roots eventually he did come back but the empire had fallen at that point and there was nothing to really go back and reclaim um did the british do that knowingly yeah he didn't end the empire the empire sikh empire had ended before that and i think yeah it but was he he fighting go back to it because it, it 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 didn't exist at that point yeah i mean he'd been educated out of his heritage you know, educated, mm. you know, and then he, in later in life, he came to realize what had happened to him, that he'd been lost touch with not only his kingdom, but also the Kohinoor and his heritage and his religion. But by then it was well gone and he had no chance. Mm. It's a very sad story. His, his biographies. It is. It it's is. a very upsetting thing. I mean, you remember he was a 10 year old kid. Uh, he never sees his mother again. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably painful. I've got a nephew who's 10 years old. I couldn't imagine that happening to him right now. Actually, yeah. he's he's 11 now. But yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that happening to him at all. So when I put it into terms like that, it really hits you. You're like, okay, that's very, very horrible. You've discussed Enoch Powell because he is unfortunately from Wolverhampton. Uh, and that is a, a stain on the legacy of Wolverhampton forever, unfortunately. But... He had major fears about communalism and six. What was those fears based on? Yeah, we uh, we tend to forget that the Rivers of Blood speech was specifically about Sikhs. When he was talking about the newly arrived Sikh population, Wolverhampton, people like my parents. And I, I guess when know he warned that about, it was based on six. Yeah, I mean, because at the time, there was a lot of controversy about how Sikhs weren't integrating. They wanted mm -hmm. to live separately. You know, but also Enoch Powell's great ambition in life was to be Viceroy of India. So when he complained about communalism, I think that's the word he uses in the speech. He's talking about, you know, groups, um, Indian groups turning against each other, you know, and that we were importing this into Britain. I guess we just had partition and that was a real example of communalism. 
And so he mm-hmm. was using, he was saying, look, we cannot allow that kind of behavior to come into Britain. But, you know, he was wrong about that, I think. I think he was wrong about everything, frankly. There were no rivers of blood in Wolverhampton. I mean, Wolverhampton has problems, but I think the the Sikh community in Britain is, is praised all the time as being a, a kind of model minority group that has integrated quite well and yet retained its heritage and its traditions mm. and that you can do both things. And his fears about how we were going to end up being a separate community within Britain just clearly aren't true. I mean, here we are. Come on, I work for the Times. <laughs> Look at you, you're Good a marketing example. expert. I don't know your Good example. Is it British? <laughs> they are. They are British, correct. There we go. Enoch Power had this deep passion for India, but spoke so disparagingly about it after his first visit. In what universe does that make sense? Why would you have such this such a deep want to be there, but also when you go there, you you basically speak so badly about it? Well, I think you can want to go somewhere and rule over it and then have real respect for the people there. I think that a lot of imperialists were like that. I've got to say, not all of them were like that. There were a lot. And William Dalrymple has written about these these men, because it always was men, almost always was men, who really yeah. admired the Indian culture, who went native, as it were, you know, who went Hindu, who started, who took on Indian brides, took a real interest in the art, collected the art. But then, you know, especially after the mutiny, there was a massive backlash against British people who did that because suddenly the Indians were seen as an enemy and you were, as a British person, you couldn't integrate. You couldn't admire the culture. You had to be racially superior. So that all ended very suddenly and you got this racial stratification. So he was just essentially, how do I say this? He was just pushing the same narrative that he himself had probably heard others say up to that point or he'd been indoctrined into. He was a very confusing and confused man. <laughs> he wanted yeah. to be Viceroy. That was the biggest tragedy of his life. He then wasn't, ended up being an MP, Wolverhampton, and then an Ulster Unionist. There were things he respected about Asian culture. He spoke Urdu, I think. He the did. He loved fluently, about the country. Yeah. But there were, I mean, he definitely didn't integrate. He famously used to wear those really thick suits with a waistcoat in the heat of India. So he wasn't keen to integrate. Like, his forebears, like other... Could have worn a korta. He could have worn a Enoch Powell would never have worn a korta. Let's, I think we can say... <laughs> he could have, though. And they are, <laughs> in, in fairness to them, they're very ideal for those for the hot weather out there. But that's the problem. That he never would have worn a korta. He wanted to lord it over Empire. Mm. And when that didn't happen, he had a, I think he had a mental crisis. I mean, when he writes about it, and it just sounds like a, sounds like a kind of breakdown. And pretty much everything he said about Empire... And brown people from empire after that is pretty confused and quite negative. Okay. The slave trade. Um, the British love to say that they abolished slavery, which is true. But how heavy was Britain's involvement with slavery for all those years beforehand? Which passageways were the British involved in? Well, the British sent 3 million Africans across the Atlantic to work on plantations of theirs. They weren't the, I think 12 million Africans in total were sent across. So they weren't responsible for all of them. There were other countries that sent more Africans across the Atlantic, but it was a lot. It definitely was a lot. 
I think the Royal yeah. African Company, run by the royal family, and you know, uh, run from palaces in London, sent more Africans across the Atlantic than any other institution in the history of the slave trade. So I think we played a big role. And if you go to the Caribbean, there's clear legacies. You know, I've talked about the diabetes, right? But there's the poor healthcare. We didn't allow the enslaved to have proper healthcare. When we left, we didn't give them money to set up a health system properly. Education, we didn't allow the enslaved to have educations. When we left, we didn't give them enough money to set up a school system. Broken families, absent fathers, modern day problems in the Caribbean. Guess what? We didn't allow the enslaved to have family life, right? A direct legacy. And then there's the genocide on the Caribs. People forget that before the Africans arrived in the Caribbean, there were people there. They were called the Caribs. There's, they were more, almost entirely wiped out through disease and murder. And that also is a legacy. These people no longer exist or largely don't exist. And that is a legacy too. And you've got to reflect upon the fact that, you know, not only did a lot of this wealth make a lot of people rich in Britain and help build all these fancy houses, but, you know, one of our richest MPs in Parliament after Rishi Sunak is, Rishi, is <laughs> Richard Drax, whose ancestors pioneered, pioneered plantation slavery in Barbados, made a fortune. He's worth 115 million pounds today. And there's, there's a, there are efforts to get reparations from him. I and mean, that's the, that's a clear case where reparations could be paid and should be paid. This man's wealth is entirely explained or largely explained by this misery. And he, he mm. totally should compensate people in Barbados. That's a very fair example, as you say, yeah, because you could channel that back quite quickly, quite easily in a clean way and say, well, it's directly correlated to this. So that makes the most sense. Has there been any update on any progression on that or any progress? No, the, the, the Caribbean nations have been campaigning as a collective called CARICOM for, dec for okay. several years. And I, I, to be honest, I've never seen a formal response from Britain. We just kind of ignore it. And uh, you know what? And then I was talking about how British Empire was often opposites. And even when it comes to slavery, the legacies aren't entirely negative. I mean, uh, abolition, you know, meant that tens, hundreds of thousands of other people weren't enslaved. It also gave birth to political activism, like the suffragette movement and white feminism wouldn't have turned up if it wasn't for abolition. There were certain charities like the Anti-Slavery International, still works today, set up during abolition. And abolition also created the origins of international law. So the legacies can be quite complicated. I mean, my famous example of how complicated it could be, you know, the, the Fry family in Bristol and the Wills family who made money from enslaved, produced chocolate and tobacco, then put that money into abolitionist causes, some money. And so you've got this weird situation where enslavement made money, which was then used to finance anti-slavery. This is a way when it, when it comes to empire, the legacies, opposite things can be true at the same time. And that's a really good example to give because people would just think slavery is simply just bad. There's of nothing. Of course, it's, good it is, and it is just bad. It was a crime. And it's, and, it's, and, it, and it's very tempting to peddle that narrative and just ignore any kind of little bits of um, not positivity, but activism that came off the back of it. Yeah, and we're not talking which about slavery itself, which is on. nothing but bad. We're talking about the legacies, the complicated yeah. ways 
the results of all this stuff and those whatever it's like a human being whatever you say about a human being the opposite is true to a certain degree and it's the same for a lot of historical legacies okay in barbados you've mentioned that quite a bit in empire world uh, they had a huge slave trade running there during the british reign you obviously spoke as well in there about how the in the plantation homes they had shackles left alongside in rooms those were taken away and they were kind of showing the happier side i guess you could say happier in quotes or the more positive side which is more appealing to tourists to go and see because there's less guilt involved in it why is that so powerful and why are they essentially trying to hide that from people yeah i guess what i found when i went around these former uh, slave plantations in barbados was that the, the history of slavery wasn't really discussed or it was suppressed, and I talked to a guide who basically said the British tourists don't want to hear about it. They want to marvel at the achievements of their white ancestors. They all, they don't want to talk about the history of slavery. And you, I kind of expect that in, at the National Trust homes to a degree, and maybe in the Deep South in America. But it was a shock to see it in the Caribbean and a, a, mm. a kind of a community and a nations entirely created by transatlantic slavery. You'd think they'd be more honest about it, and but yeah. It seems British people don't want to hear about it. And is that because they don't know about it and therefore when they hear about it, it's a massive shock and then they feel this sense of woe and therefore bad TripAdvisor updates, I guess you can say, or bad reviews left online um, will essentially tank are, your business. They're on cruises. You know, they just want to have fun. They will, yeah. They're probably not even thinking about any kind of history. They're thinking about the buffet, you know? Mm. But I think this applies in general to British people traveling abroad. We don't think about what we did the last time British people were there, you know, and we need to stop that. You know, we we can't keep on intervening in places like Palestine without reflecting upon the fact that we helped create that situation. You know, we're bombing Yemen at the moment. The East India Company had a base there. You know, Myanmar and Kashmir, these are disputes we've got involved in. And yet there's very little reflection about how we helped create those situations in the first place. And my argument is just, when we turn up in these in this places, when we intervene, we need to have a better sense of what happened during the British Empire. Okay. That ties in well to sort of racism, I guess you can say. Um, you've referenced Darwin and uh, his origin of species that was used to land, lend weight to really backwards theories. Um, theories being that black people were more related to apes than they were to white people. Um, how does that sort of tie in and how does that conversation come about? Um, Darwin himself didn't really apply his theories of evolution to race, to the human race. It was a secondary person who took it. And yeah, then people tried took to it, racial scientists took it, and then applied the idea to brown people. Say, for example, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people who were seen as the lowest of the low on the scale, this absurd scale they came up with, which made it easier to murder them. and. Hmm which led to, you know, an actual genocide of the Tasmanians. I mean, these people were wiped out, you know. Some so-called Tasmanian Aboriginal culture exists, but, you know, the seven, around seven to 8,000 people who were there were either died through disease or were hunted or raped or just simply murdered or, or relocated elsewhere. And do, you, do we feel like there's a bit of, People trying to make the shoe, sorry, hmm. 
trying to make the shoe fit, I guess you can say, which is I'm going to have this theory. I'm going to take this really renowned theory of the origin of species and just put my theory next to it. And then it will merge together and it will give it some weight, I guess you can say, or some truth to it. Yeah. And yeah, eugenics, all this, this science didn't seem weird to a lot of people at the time, looking back on it, it's absurd, but a lot of the things that happened, like, um, in, in during empire confirmed to racists what they thought they believed. So for example, after abolition, a lot, a lot of abolitionists made the case that if you gave freedom to the enslaved, they would work, they would become, you know, useful citizens and establish a society of their own. When they didn't behave in the ways they predicted, it led to more racism. It led to a lot of people saying, Oh, this confirms what we thought about black people. So it led to a reconfirming of people's racist beliefs. So this is a way, another paradox with abolition, which is seen as a good thing, but actually led to an, a kind of outpouring of even worse racism because the black and slave didn't behave in the way that was predicted because they were human beings. And guess what? They didn't necessarily want to work on those plantations where they were castrated, murdered, and raped. Well, they probably knew what they probably knew that only escape out of there was death potentially because there wasn't any sign of freedom coming. So why would they work with such enthusiasm in any sort of way? There is only so much you can ask of someone who's being paid a minimum, not even a minimum wage, just being paid to sort of live and work every day for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's almost so much you can trust people who've done this to you so and your family going back generations. Yeah. Rudyard Kipling had a huge role on British literature and society. Could you give the listeners a quick intro on who he was and what role he played with pushing racial stereotypes? I'm not a massive expert on Rudyard Kipling, except he was a complicated guy. Um, yeah. He wasn't always pro-Empire, but he did write some really jingoistic stuff. The most famous poem of his on Empire is White Man's Burden. The title probably gives away what it was about. It was mm -hmm. written as an attempt to persuade the Americans to do in the Philippines what the British Empire had done to brown people in the empire. The idea, wow. as white people, your duty was to lift brown people out of their lack of civilization. You've got to remember that, you know, nowadays the term white saviour is seen as an insult. If you went to the 19th century and called imperialists white saviours, they probably would have said, yeah, we are. They would have been proud of it because... The so-called civilizing mission was a central part of British colonialism. The idea that you were spreading British values, that you were encouraging the abolition of slavery, that you were stopping Hindus, Hindu widows from throwing themselves onto funeral pyres, you know, that you were getting rid of the so-called thugs. Um, this was a key part of the imperial mission, and Rudyard Kipling very much absorbed it and celebrated it in that poem. And how did he, is, is that the only contribution he had towards hyping up racial stereotypes or did he have other influences? Wasn't he the one who wrote literature that that was he wrote corrected the again book. and again and again? Yes, that's it. There you go. He you wrote know what? Book. I think he's, I haven't read the huge amount of Kipling, but I, I have read enough to know that he had complicated views and, yeah. you know, he was a symptom of his times. So you know, he was born in India and he had definite affection the people there and he he would criticize imperial policies at certain times but overall he definitely was a i say i think it's very interesting he was an apologist for for british empire 
funny how even if you're born in India and you have an appreciation for those people, you can still peddle those beliefs later on. Maybe that's because he came to the to Britain later. I'm assuming this. He he came to Britain later and saw the way of life and thought, oh, I fit in here. There is a superiority complex and there is a hierarchy. I think actually he's, he came back to Britain and he struggled in Britain. But yeah, to be honest, I don't know enough about him, so I don't want to misspeak. That's fine. No worries. Literature that was circulated in the 1900s to push stereotypes, such as Indians are industrious and hard workers, but black people are lazy and untrustworthy. When was that taken out of the cycle of literature that was circulated? I think actually you could say some of that still influences modern thinking today. Just look on Twitter. You'll find people churning out those stereotypes. But the thing that killed racial science was the Holocaust. You know, Hitler's Holocaust was, you know, based on that racial science. And I think there was, there was an instant rejection. No, actually not instant. There was a large scale rejection of that science after people realized what had happened. And it was the ultimate manifestation of those eugenics and that racial science. Didn't that coincide as well with the timing of the 1947 Nationality Act? Am I correct in saying this? Yeah, which is where they wanted to get away from that happening. Well, they saw that happening and wanted to peddle something that was the complete opposite, which was a mass appeal of others from countries that were living in empire to have instant British citizenship. I think the two things are totally disconnected. I think the, okay. the 1948 Nationality Act was in 1947. 47 or 48, I, I think can't it's 1948 remember. 1948 Nationality Act. That was the one that made, pretty much made all the citizens of empire, citizens of Britain, a mad mm-hmm. thing to do. I think because it basically made some hundreds of millions of people citizens of Britain. But I think the thinking behind that at the time was that the empire was disintegrating and the British desperately wanted to keep it together. They didn't think lots of people would come. And it was a way to placate placate the former or the imminently former British colonies. People are worried today about boats. That then was a uh, a much bigger, um, I guess you could say, people turning up at the shores and... Well, yeah, a famous boat arrived. The the Windrush arrived. And people forget that when the Windrush arrived in Britain, the people on that boat was British citizens. You know, they weren't, they didn't arrive, you know, without any connection to this land. They arrived thinking they'll be welcome. And hence why the scandal was so, so bad with the way it happened and transpired, even though so much proof was given, the push to get them out of it was horrible. Dealing with racism, um, this is something that you have probably had a lot of experience with. Um, why do you feel like you have a lot of pushback compared to your white counterparts who have covered the exact same topics? I think there's a lot of people in Britain today that have a connection to the British Empire. Their families served in the British Empire, good and bad ways. I think there's a lot of people in Britain who's, who are descendants of the colonized. Mm-hmm. And I think the moment a brown person, a descendant of the colonized appears and says, actually, the story was different and actually certain bad things happened. It triggers people. I think they feel like they're being accused of crimes that their family didn't commit. They're being accused of racism. Sometimes when you don't even mention racism, they get defensive about race because they think you're going to mention it. And as we know, race is the most toxic subject in the world. So 
immediately gets very confrontational. And you immediately, what happens is you start reenacting the tensions of empire. You've got the descendants of the colonizers versus the descendants of the colonized, which is why increasingly I try not to talk about empire being good or bad. I think it's best to talk about it being contradictory because that's what it was. I did notice a change between the first book and the second book. I'm only two chapters into the new book, but I've noticed there's slightly more of a balanced approach taken, even in your introduction, where you give the analogy of saying it's difficult to take empire out of everything. And it has such a lasting impact that it did not necessarily have a positive impact on, on, on the countries, etc. But I did notice you took a more balanced perspective. Was that intentional? I don't think I'm any more balanced. I think I've hopefully I've always been balanced. But I guess what I talked about in the first book was complexity. And what I've realized in the empire world is that legacies are contradictory. Right? They're completely mm. opposites. And that is something that occurs to you when you spend four or five years studying them in that you can't really delineate them. An example, I'll give you an example here with the national parks. Okay, so the British set up national parks in places like New Zealand, Australia, and Africa to protect the environment and animals seems like a really good thing right a positive legacy of empire except the people who start who started these national parks had often caused the environmental damage or the animal destruction in the first place sometimes they were the hunters and then the people living on these national parks aren't allowed the indigenous people aren't allowed to live their lives in the way they want to because the imperialists have decided that these are national parks. So you've got a lot going on there. You've got the good of the national parks, then you've got the bad of the fact that the people who set them up have done bad things. You've got the bad of the fact that the indigenous people aren't by being allowed to live their lives. They're being dominated by colonialists in the modern day. So were national parks good or bad? You can't talk about it in that way. It's, it's much too complicated. And there's a tendency to want to give empire a kind of rating out of five, like an Amazon review. <laughs> or a podcast yeah, rating and empire wasn't like that. It was much too complicated. And that's hard to accept, but you're giving a very unbiased point of view there by saying that. I know people on the left and right struggle with that, but I mean, another um, analogy I use is with the climatology. So say you want to study the climate over the last three, 350 years. Yeah. And I think what British people say is that, Okay, I want to study the climate of the last 350 years, but I only want to focus on the sunshine, the good things. Or you might get people on the left saying, I only want to focus on the rain. And actually, if you just study the sunshine or just study the rain, you're not going to get, get, get a good, good sense of the climate, are you? What mm. you need to understand is how the sunshine and the rain interacted in weird ways, how there was weather in between. And the same is true for more than 300 years of the British Empire. You know, someone. I think a lot of a lot of this proves your point, which is humans are so contradictory and complex. Not all of them will think in one way. There will be some that think the opposite and they will have their voice and they will have their moments to get those points across. Yeah, I think, I mean, Professor Alan Lester, who I talked about this, said that, you know, someone, empire was different things in different parts of the world, but empire was different things in different part of the day. Like an Indian in the Punjab might have had a positive experience with an imperial police officer in the morning. He might have helped him sort out a dispute with his brother or his neighbor, right? Yeah. In the same day, in the afternoon, he might have had a terrible experience of imperial racism, you know, in a hotel. Um, and that is one day. And imagine that over 
thousands of days in different parts of the world. It's gonna. It's not going to be a straightforward black and white thing, is it? No, of course not. Multiculturalism. Um, how should minorities integrate into society and keep their multicultural roots alive, in your opinion? Because there is this conversation that is happening, which is multiculturalism hasn't worked and all of this conversation. What's the best way for minorities to integrate, but also not lose their roots? I know six are a good example, but even that, when I think to the third generation of kids, so when I have kids, they're not going to have the same lived experience that I have with my parents who are first generation. Yeah. So what's the, what's the good balance to kind of establish there? I don't have a straightforward answer to that, but I actually think, how old are you? I'm 32. I think your generation and younger are doing it better than my generation. I think my generation were, were much more tortured about it, maybe because we faced much more brutal racism. It was much mm. harder to have long hair or a turban, right, perhaps. I find that the young Sikhs I meet today are much more confident than I ever was in their identity, yeah. and yet they are very British as well. And I think they are showing our generation, my generation, how to do it much more than we did. But I think the Sikhs are a pretty good example. And But there's loads of communities that have integrated really well. I think loads of Muslims have, loads of Jews have. You can I could point to many communities in London. I think London itself is a good example of how multiculturalism works. Wolverhampton, Birmingham. But you only ever hear the negative stories. Mm. Yeah. That's unfortunately how it goes. But even with being labeled things such as whitewashed by your own people or giving into the British class system, I, I'm even I'm finding it difficult to find a way to go into this. So for example, my Punjabi isn't the best. Um, a lot of people give me shit for saying that I'm whitewashed and I don't speak enough Punjabi or I don't eat enough Indian food because my stomach physically can't take it and I've got IBS. But that puts me under the umbrella of like, oh, he's whitewashed. He's not enough like me. But I then think, how can I be enough like my own people, but also integrate into today's world that needs me to be somebody else, not somebody who lived in the bend 50 years ago? This is where we've got as communities, we've got to stop doing that. It's a form of racism, like all this, you're a coconut. You're, you know, I had a, I, I get that a lot because, you know, I do, I, Punjabi is my first language, but, you know, I work for the Times. Um, I'll give you an example of what happened. And in one of my documentaries, um, I was given a lassi to drink um, mm. in India. And I said on camera, oh, I've never had a lassi before. And I had so many people saying, you're a coconut. How can you never had a lassi? And I was like, how come I, I've never had a lassi? And I went to my mom and I was like, how come I never had a lassi? And she went, oh, I don't like lassis. So I never gave you, <laughs> I never gave, gave you one. So this is the way we all think our version of being brown is the version. But actually, there are million, millions of ways of being brown. And we've got to stop being so prejudiced. And frankly, it's a version of racism, you know, judging people for their authenticity um, in being brown. We should welcome people for or accept them as they are. And there's millions of ways of being Sikh and being brown. That's really well put. What do you say to people like Piers Morgan who say, why live in a country you loathe? when you challenge racism in Britain. It wasn't yourself. He said it to somebody else on a show a while ago. Yeah. What's the right rebuttal or way to combat that kind of conversation? You don't loathe the country. 
if you criticize it. I might criticize my mum. She's annoying. She's a brilliant woman, but she could improve. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's the fact that I love her that I might criticize her in some ways. The fact that she loves me, that she might criticize me. If you love something, you criticize it because you want it to be better. So I want Britain to be better accepting his history. I don't hate it. I probably love it more because unlike Piers Morgan, I've put in four or five years of trying to study the history of my nation. You know, if that's not an act of love, I don't know what is. If I didn't love this country, I wouldn't bother. So I would say criticism is a sign of love, but also it's a great British tradition to criticize. I would say it's a defining yeah, it. British value. <laughs> I mean, it's all we ever do is argue and criticize each other and ourselves and self-deprecation or criticizing other people. And it's one of the things that makes Britain great. You know, a lot of countries don't have that. Too many countries don't allow criticism, but we have a great tradition. I would say that even Piers Morgan and I are probably the same in the sense that we both criticize elements of this nation. And that is what part of the, what makes this country great. I never would have thought you would have come to this conversation and say you and Piers Morgan are alike. That is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that either. <laughs> Weirdly, I knew Piers when he was a, a nice guy-ish. He was quite left-wing once. I interviewed him twice. He was editor of the Daily Mirror. Mm. And he's become something else. But I don't know. I mean, maybe he's more complicated behind the... Behind I think the he's a complicated head. person in general. Depends on which era of Piers Morgan you caught him in. Yeah, this is a, another hacking, illustration of my theory hacking. that opposite things are true, you know? Genuinely, yeah, it is that. Um, my last couple of questions now. So the catalyst for resistance towards a monarchy in the Caribbean after the royals visited a couple of years ago, what did we think that started from? Or the voice for that was is kind of reaching a fever pitch? Yeah, it's weird because the royals went to the Caribbean a few weeks after I did, and they did what they always do. And yet... Everyone agreed, including the monarchist press, that that trip was a disaster. It's the one they were, they were waving from the back of a Land Rover, and the touching children kids were the fence. in between fence. That picture was oh, absolutely horrible. But that, there, that lives could, in my head, and I can't get rid of it. I could show you a hundred pictures like that from past royal tours. Nothing had yeah. changed except everything had changed. And what had changed was Black Lives Matter, and also a sudden interest in colonialism and mm. knowledge about colonialism. And suddenly, people saw that royal tours were colonial. And it's amazing mm. how much it changed. I mean, the King Charles's recent tour of Kenya, completely different. Lots of talk about the bad that the British did with the Mama, right? It's, mm. It was like, almost like the main message. Um, but I think they've got further to go. You know, the royals, for example, one of their big things is animal charities and animal conservation. They very rarely mm. talk about all the animals that their own family shot. I mean, Prince Philip shot a tiger in 1961. I think it was on camera. And I think it would make their case more powerful if they acknowledged their imperial history. If they said, oh, actually, by the way, our palaces are de decorated with mahogany furniture from forests in the Caribbean that we decimated. And they're decorated with animal furs from all the animals that we shot to the point of extinction. And that is why we should care about animal conservation. That is a much more interesting argument than them just standing up and going, oh, we really care about the elephants and the tigers. <laughs> yeah, if you peel back the layers a little bit and show people how you live it, 
then people are more inclined to not believe you, but you build a bit of trust there. Yeah, it's happening it's a not bit. So Apparently, Prince William was complaining about or was arguing at one point that all the ivory in, in Buckingham Palace should be hidden away or destroyed or whatever. I'd say, yeah, bring it on, man. You've got to live what you say, but it applies to Britain too. We can't lecture people about human rights, the environment and democracy. We do it all the time without reflecting upon our really distinctly dodgy records on all those things during the British Empire. Hmm. Okay, last question. After the Queen passed, a lot of people were told now is not the time to discuss the actions or impact of the monarchy across the world. When is the right time to discuss this? Um, I think we can definitely talk about the Queen's probably confused, dodgy record on empire now. People did it at the time, but not in Britain. They did it in America and they did it in South Africa. And whenever that interacted with what British people thought, there was explosions of controversy, right? But the world knows what happened in empire. So they don't find this controversial. It's only us. We're trying to protect our feelings because there's not much knowledge about the British empire in Britain. But I think that's changing very quickly. I get that sense through my books and people buying them. I get that sense from young people who are really animated about these issues and want to find out and they're not defensive and they don't respond with racist abuse when you raise the issue of the British Empire. And all the surveys, I think, show that people are increasingly into it. I think 75% of people roughly think that colonialism and slavery should be taught at school. 44% of people think that the royals should pay reparations which is very high considering lots of people don't even know what the royal family did with slavery. So I think Mm. the conversation is totally changing and it will change a lot more in the next five or 10 years. It's been a great interview. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for your careful questions and um, not testing my Punjabi. (laughs) If Dr. was here, he definitely, definitely would have at the end. Can you tell people um, where they can find you? Other things to expect from you coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm touring. I'm doing a bit of a tour. If you have a look at my website, satnam.com, it gives you all the events. And then I look forward to not reading any more books about the British Empire and doing something else entirely soon. Not even a third book? Actually, there is a third book in the sense that it's a kid's book. So I've done three books on the British Empire, Empire Land, Empire World, Stolen History. And I need, I know I have written novels and I've, well, one novel and a memoir and, I think I need to remind myself that I can do other things. This book, if people can can see the screen right now, that book there, fantastic. Still reading it, still going through it. Even got notes that I spoke to spoke to to Satnam in this interview. It's been great. Thank you so much. No worries, uh, man. Thanks for your time. Hopefully, we can do this again. Hopefully, we can do this again. Definitely, people. I will catch you next week.